The scripture reading for tonight comes from Luke 23, verses 32 through 46. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Well, good evening again, and welcome to our Good Friday service. It's the middle of Holy Week, uh, kind of the last week of Jesus' life, the week of his death and resurrection, and today is Good Friday, which we call good because looking back, this was a good day for us. Jesus' death, his crucifixion, is how our sins were atoned for. And so, in a very real sense, we look back on this day and call it good. But what we're trying to do this Holy Week is sort of relive the original Holy Week, uh, reenact it uh, in a way. And on the actual historical day of Christ's death, it was anything but good. It was confusing at best and devastating at worst. And so, we're going to use our passage in Luke 23 to look back at the day of Jesus' death, and uh, we're going to use the two criminals who were crucified at the same time as Jesus uh, as kind of a way to give us some better insight into the death of Christ. After all, they were, uh, the two criminals were closer to Jesus in his final moments than anyone else. Now, there's a saying, the, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The saying is usually associated with God and the gospel message in one way or another, and it's, it's very similar to a metaphor used in scripture of Jesus being a stone. He is uh, either a cornerstone upon which all other stones sit, or he's a different kind of stone. He's a stumbling block over which people trip. But the point, of course, is this, that the same God, the same Jesus, the same gospel message can lead to opposite responses in people. Uh, God, Jesus, the gospel, they stay the same, but people will react radically different, differently to them. They may melt 
or they may harden. They may rest upon him, or they may trip over him. In our passage, the two criminals who are crucified with Jesus have completely different reactions to him. One hardens, one melts. One rests upon Jesus, one trips over him. One mocks God, and the other fears God. And so as we look at Luke 23 and the crucifixion of Jesus, we're going to use these two criminals and their two responses to Jesus for our two points. And so the first point will be mocking God, and the second point will be fearing God. So let's begin with mocking God. In verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. One of the criminals railed at Jesus. And that word railed is really key to understanding the verse because taken out of context, the words that the criminal speaks could just as easily be seen as praises of Jesus instead of mocking him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Are you not the Christ? I believe you are. Save yourself and us. I believe you can. But of course, this criminal does not believe that he is the Christ. He isn't saying these words earnestly. He's saying them sarcastically. He's railing at Jesus. And that word railed could also be translated blaspheming. He's blaspheming Jesus. He's treating God as if he's not God. He's mocking God, which is really taking your own life uh, into your own hands. You know, mocking God is not something you want to be doing, Uh, not because it affects God in any way. You know, God isn't affected one bit by the opinions of men. He's not like us. When we're mocked, it hurts. You know, when we're mocked, we feel insecure. We may lash out Or we may totally change how we act to be sure that we're not mocked in the same way again. Like, if one of you were to be like, hey, Pastor Kevin, you have any cycling illustrations this week? How about Hamilton? How about you ruin another movie for us? You know, I would feel that. It would sting a little. I would probably be self-conscious about ever using cycling or Hamilton or movies and illustrations ever again, right? Because being mocked affects us. But being mocked does not affect God. He's not going to change his plan or how he works because someone mocks him. Jesus isn't going to be like, good point, criminal number one. I guess I'll hop off the cross, right? Of course not. Mocking God isn't going to change God one bit, but you still don't want to be found mocking God. Uh, It's easy to fall into, though, especially when others around you start to do it, right? It can become sort of contagious to mock God. I mean, Even in our passage, the criminal isn't the only one mocking Jesus. Several people are mocking God. In verse 34, Jesus' garments are divided up and essentially gambled over. Verse 35, the rulers scoff at Jesus and say, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verses 36 and 37, the soldiers mock him, offering him sour wine to prolong his suffering. Suffering. And they say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then they put a sign over him in verse 38 that says, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus was mocked and mocked and mocked and mocked some more by bystanders, by religious leaders, by soldiers, even by one of the others being crucified just like him. They all mocked God, which wasn't going to change God 
but it was going to change them. Mocking God doesn't change God, but it does change you for the worse. It hardens you against God. It doesn't change God, but it does change you. And here's how that kind of works. In order to mock someone, <clears throat> you have to have a sense of superiority over them, right? When you mock or when anyone mocks someone else, the mocker feels superior to them, superior in knowledge or superior in social standing, superior in something. And that's exactly what we see in our passage, right? Es essentially, everyone's mocking boils down to thinking that they know better what God would do or what God should do. If I were God, they all say, I simply wouldn't die on a cross. I would save myself. So if you mock God, you place yourself above him. And if you don't immediately repent of that, you start to get comfortable there. You begin to think, hmm, well, if I know better than God in this situation, maybe I know better than him in other situations, too. But of course, no one knows better than God. And so if you ever find yourself mocking God, you're deceiving yourself. I would imagine that for most of us who would set aside time on a Friday night to come to church during Holy Week, we don't really think of ourselves as likely to mock God, certainly not in the way that the criminal on the cross did. You know, we're glad that Jesus stayed on the cross. We believe he is God. We don't rail at Jesus. We worship him as Lord and Savior. But there can be more subtle ways that we still kind of mock God, even as people who would never with our lips uh, say that we are superior to him. And it can happen through things like apologizing for doctrines of our faith. Like, have you ever found yourself talking to someone who <clears throat> doesn't believe or who's a young believer or exploring the faith, and you sort of make excuses or apologize for some of the harder-to-swallow Christian doctrines, like anything related to the tra traditional Christian sex ethic or hell or God's sovereignty or whatever? When you make excuses or apologize for God, you're actually mocking him. You're saying, look, you and I both know that it would, be better, it would be better to do things differently. But, you know, God means well, and in order to get the good parts of Christianity, uh, you have to kind of grit your teeth through some of this other stuff. That's mocking God. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Whatever God ordains, it's right. If I find myself doubting the wisdom or justice or holiness or goodness of something God says or does, I am wrong. God's not wrong. I am wrong. I need my mind to be renewed. God doesn't need his mind to be renewed. I need to ask him to open my eyes to see it differently, to see it from his perspective, or I need to ask him to enable me to trust him in the midst of something that's mysterious to us now on earth. But God does not need me to make excuses for him or to apologize for him. That is mocking him. One caveat, though, to this, there is a difference between bringing God your doubts, bringing God your questions, and mocking him. Like, we shouldn't be surprised that we as finite humans have trouble understanding the things of God. His ways are higher than our ways. 
But what we do in those moments of doubt or question or struggle makes a big difference. Uh, You know, I was once organizing an adult Sunday school class at the church that I used to work for, and I recruited the elders of the church to each cover a session or two of this like spring class, 13 weeks long on Sundays, and I provided the elders with some resources to help them plan their sessions. And so for one of the classes, I'd emailed an elder some photocopies of a chapter in a book that he could use to prepare a session, and uh, he read them, and he had some doubts and questions about the content, and so he emailed me back. Um, But he emailed me back with tremendous humility. He said, you know, Kevin, I, I read that chapter, and I don't understand how that chapter will help me teach on this topic, um, but you must have picked it for a reason. Can you help me understand? W- what did you see in that chapter that I'm not seeing? And I thought that was just a tremendous example of humility, a, a good model for how to approach God when we don't understand or get something. Um, of course, that illustration actually breaks down a little bit uh, because I am not God, and it turns out that the chapter I sent him was legitimately bad. Um, I didn't read it that closely ahead of time. Uh, other chapters in the book were good, and so I just assumed that one would be too, but I was wrong. But that just goes to show how humble this elder was in his email back to me, willing to say, I might not see the whole picture. But all that to say, even we who believe can find ourselves mocking God simply in our demeanor toward him and his word when we have doubts or struggles or questions. Do we assume we know better, or do we approach him with humility? Now, when the first criminal rails against Jesus, when he says sarcastically, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other criminal, in verse 40, he rebukes the first criminal, and he says, Do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? That takes us to our second point, fearing God. Uh, In Isaiah, the prophets, uh, in Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah um, is in the throne room of God. And I think uh, it illustrates a potentially confusing concept of what it means to fear God. And so Isaiah 6, Isaiah is in the throne room. Uh, And the Lord is sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe is uh, filling the entire temple. There's angelic beings singing back and forth to one another. The whole room is filled with smoke. It's shaking. And so Isaiah, with what I would say is a healthy fear of God, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is not afraid of God in the sense that a victim might be afraid of their abuser. Isaiah's fear is more of a right acknowledgement that God is high above him. He's holy. And Isaiah has no standing before him on his own. You know, Isaiah is unclean as he rightly acknowledges. That's really more of what it means to fear God. God. It means to rightly acknowledge God and where you stand before him. And where you stand before him actually could vary depending on whether you're a believer or not, right? Like, there is a fear that a non-believer should have in God's presence that someone who does believe uh, doesn't have because they've been assured of their forgiveness before God. But again, fearing God is really just 
rightly acknowledging where you stand before him. It's the appropriate awe and reverence and respect of the difference between who God is and who you are. So in our passage, the second criminal, when he hears the first criminal mocking Jesus, he says to him, do you not fear God? Don't you fear him? How can you say what you're saying right now? Do you have no fear of God? And then he goes on to make a pretty good case for why the man should fear God. He says first, you're under the same sentence of condemnation. You know, they're both nailed to crosses, so it really doesn't make much sense to express any sense of superiority over Jesus. At best, he is on equal footing, but we actually know as the second criminal goes on to say, that they're not on equal footing. Uh, in verse 41, the second criminal says, And indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. You know, he's saying you and I definitely deserve to be up here being crucified. It's a just punishment. We're receiving the due reward for our deeds. And so there's no room for us to feel superior. We deserve this. We should be humbled. We should fear God. A healthy fear of God is what we should be feeling right now. And then he really rounds out his case in verse 41. But this man, Jesus, this man, he's done nothing wrong. Jesus has done nothing wrong. We're under the same sentence of death as Jesus, and we deserve that death sentence. We're reaping what we sowed, but this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. He does not deserve the punishment that he is receiving. And you see how these are really the building blocks of a basic profession of faith, a basic profession that one fears God. One, I, I'm under the sentence of death. Two, I deserve the sentence of death that I am under. Three, Jesus has done nothing wrong and does not deserve the sentence of death that he has received. Those are some of the basic building blocks that make up a profession of faith. You could say the second criminal is making his own profession of faith right now through his rebuke of the other criminal. So what does he go on to say? Verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Save me. I fear God. I've received the sentence of death. I deserve that sentence of death, but you, Jesus, you do not deserve the sentence of death that you're receiving. You've done nothing wrong. Everything that you've ever done has been holy and right. Will you please save me? Will you please remember me when you come into your kingdom? Now, when he asked Jesus to remember him, He's using the word remember in a much stronger sense than we normally do. He isn't simply asking Jesus to think about him from time to time after he's dead and gone. He's using remember uh, to say much more than that. Um, he's expressing faith that there is a coming kingdom, that there is life after death. There's somewhere that Jesus is going after he dies. And second, He's asking Jesus to bring him there too, to act on his behalf in that kingdom, to bring him into it, to remember him. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will you bring me there with you too? Will you remember me? And it completes his profession of saving faith. And we know this because of what Jesus says back to him in verse 43. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. When I come into my kingdom, I will remember you. I will bring you with me. In fact, today, you will be with me in paradise. 
Now, there's a lot of questions that come up at this point. How could it be today if Jesus was going to rise from the dead three days later? And what exactly is paradise even referring to? And, uh, you know, I don't think that we can say with exact precision what happens when believers die. Uh, From this passage, though, it seems fair to say that we immediately experience some sort of paradise. We're immediately present with God. Uh, And most likely, this is some sort of spiritual presence. Um, As scripture also teaches, there is a later resurrection of our bodies at the consummation of the new creation. And so best I can tell, when we die, it gets really good for us, and then at Jesus' second coming, it gets even better. And so whatever the exact specifics are, I can't say for sure. I've never died, but what I can say for sure is that it's good. Uh, for, For Christians, it is good. It's paradise, uh, just like it is for the second criminal. Paradise, today, the presence of Jesus awaits, awaits us on the other side of death. Now, a couple takeaways from this scene with the two criminals, things to know, things to take to heart. First, they were both criminals. The one who mocked God and the one who feared God were both criminals. And that's instructive for us. We're all criminals. The distinction between finding salvation is not the distinction between being a criminal and not being a criminal. They were both criminals. We are all criminals before a holy God. We transgress his law, and when you break the law, you're a criminal. Because they were both criminals, they both justly deserved the sentence of condemnation, as the one pointed out. And if you are a criminal then you too deserve the sentence of condemnation. You deserve to be up there on that cross too. We all do. But one of the criminals that day found paradise while the other didn't. One found salvation, one found condemnation. What was the difference? The one who found paradise and salvation confessed. He confessed that he was a sinner, that he was being crucified justly. He was receiving his due reward for his deeds. And not just that, he also declared that Jesus did not deserve to be crucified. He had done nothing wrong, but was being crucified unjustly. And then he looked forward to the kingdom of God. He looked forward to when Jesus would come into his kingdom, and he asked Jesus to remember him, to take him there to save him. That was the difference. That was the difference between being saved and not being saved. Then the other takeaway is that the criminal on the cross, uh, the other takeaway the criminal on the cross shows us is that salvation is by grace through faith alone. The, the criminal who Jesus says will be with him today in paradise is the answer to all sorts of theological questions. He's the test case that shows us that nothing but grace through faith saves because it's a deathbed conversion, which means he didn't do all sorts of things, right? Like, The criminal never was baptized, right? Of course not. He was on a cross. He died. And so we know that baptism doesn't save you. It's also probably the case that the criminal did not have perfect theology. He probably couldn't explain the Trinity to you. That's okay because perfect theology doesn't save you. He also never had time to do any good works. You know, he was nailed to a cross when he professed faith, and then he died. He never gave tithes and offerings. He never was merciful to the poor. He did no good works but he was still saved because you are not saved by works. The salvation of the criminal who feared God shows us that salvation is by grace through faith. 
faith in what Jesus has done for you, faith in what happened on this day nearly 2,000 years ago. The Son of God, God himself, was born a human. He took on flesh. He lived life in our fallen, miserable world, and he lived a perfectly righteous life in it. He deserved all the glory and honor and blessing that we talked about last Sunday, but he didn't claim it. He didn't claim the glory and honor and blessing that he deserved, and instead, he let himself be betrayed, and he underwent a sham trial. He was whipped and beaten and bruised and battered, and then he went to the cross. Nails through his hands, nails through his feet, blood pouring out, thirsty, hungry, struggling to breathe. Each and every breath required him to straighten his body just enough for his windpipe to open up so he could get a little bit more air in his lungs until eventually he was completely sapped of strength and couldn't push up one more time, and he suffocated, and he died. That should have been us. Our sins deserved that. It should have been us, but it wasn't. It was him in our place. The sins of all who have ever or will ever believe in him were pinned on Jesus, and he took them to the cross and died in our place. It should have been us but it was him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your radical grace and mercy toward us. We confess, Father, that it should have been us who received the punishment for sin. Lord, how often we take our sin lightly. How rarely we lament our sinfulness, our wickedness before you. But Father, even despite our imperfect faith, our imperfect repentance, our imperfect sanctification, you are gracious towards us. You are merciful toward us. You sent your son to die on a cross to save us. We thank you so much, Lord. We pray this all in his name. Amen.